He helps us free from every need that hath us now taken. The only evil foe now means deadly woe. Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you receive the atoning sacrifice of your Son for the sins of the whole world, and therefore raised him from the dead to bring salvation to us all. Grant that as Jesus fixed his eyes upon your good and gracious will for us, so may we forever fix our eyes upon him as you did not abandon his soul to Sheol, neither will you abandon us 
or allow us to see the corruption of eternal death. Preserve us in the hope of the resurrection and grant us the confidence of faith that we may never be shaken by sin and death. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. The collect just prayed is for Psalm 16, the second week of two weeks on the second article of the Creed. And it is a psalm of David, but when the psalmist prays, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Those words belong in Jesus' mouth to his Father. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus' body did not rot in the grave because he had made atonement for sin. It rested in the grave and then he was raised to new life on account of that atoning sacrifice. So Psalm 16 makes that connection. It's a psalm used by Peter uh, in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This week, the Bible readings... Today is also St. James of Jerusalem, brother of Jesus and martyr. Uh, he is the one who wrote the epistle that bears his name, an epistle that draws heavily upon the Sermon on the Mount and what it is to live by faith in God's mercy. Uh, this James did not believe in Jesus at the first during his earthly ministry, but came to faith uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection. The Bible narratives, Tower of Babel tomorrow, and then the call of Abram. The first 11 chapters of Genesis do much to describe how we got from it is very good at creation, innocence without sin, to the condition of the world today. From the time of innocence fallen to sin, to the great corruption uh, that led to the great flood. From the longevity of people, 969 years from Methuselah, to the Lord saying through Noah, at most 120 years. And that's, uh, that's where things are. What's interesting about that passage for the skeptics out there is the books of Moses are very old. Okay, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch. And so here in these ancient texts is the foretelling that pretty much now the top end of a person's life is going to be 120 years. Um, it's also Moses that says it's three score and ten. Or if by reason of strength, 80, count your blessings. Okay. All right, and then so a mighty fortress is our hymn for the week as we anticipate next Sunday's celebration of the Reformation. And I wanted to remind you of the fact that next Sunday, it's in the bulletin, we'll observe in the prayers and so forth the 60th anniversary of the congregation. Believe it or not, it's been 10 years since the 50th. So October the 28th in 1962 was when the congregation was first established. Those of you who may not be aware of it, we have three living charter members of the congregation still among us, uh, the youngest of whom is Melody Rubish, and then 
Jim, and Shirley Weber. So those three are the remaining charter members that would have originally been here at the time of the constituting of the congregation. Um, in the 60s, it wasn't fashionable to name Lutheran startup congregations after saints, like St. John, St. Peter, and so forth, um, or the names of, of Jesus, like Emmanuel Lutheran Church. Uh, so our, our name is Peace, even though the founding of the congregation took place on the feast of St. Simon and St. Jude, two of the more obscure members of the original 12. Wouldn't that have been cool, though? It would have been unique. There's lots of Peace Lutheran churches around there, but St. Simon and St. Jude Evangelical Lutheran Church, Sussex. You know that, oh, you go to St. Simon and St. Jude. Okay. Let's uh, go to the Bible verse um, on the board, John 3.16. I'm sure you know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'd just like you to think about this during the week. That we've been in John, you know, in those Bible verses, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God a couple of weeks ago. Last week, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, speaking of God the Son. And now in chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He is the eternal Word of the Father through all through whom all things were made. But this, uh, that the Father gave his only begotten Son, this giving is the self-giving, sacrificial love of God that moves God to offer up his Son into death for us. So I'd like you to think about it. It's not simply that he gave his only begotten Son to be born of the Virgin. Wasn't that cute? He gave his son to die. He gave his son to be sacrificed. And that's at the heart of the second article in the catechism, redemption, who has redeemed me, uh, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins. How did he do it? Not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. So let's go to Genesis, shall we? And a couple of, um, a couple of remaining um, comments about the curse of the fall and the fall into sin. Sometimes it's confused by young and old catechumens alike. The fall into sin occurred when Adam and Eve turned away from God's word and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That they were one flesh and the headship of Adam and his responsibility to teach and preach the word and protect his wife and the honor of God is further seen in what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. By one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. That one man is Adam. 
he'll say, for as in Adam, all die. And I, I did get an email this week, uh, and I thought we addressed it in Bible class, but the older I get, maybe I've forgotten. And I'm thinking, it's some other Bible, store, Bible class that we had, or did okay. But uh, what about Eve? And where was Adam? The text says Adam was with her. And he kept his mouth shut. In the New Testament, St. Paul says to Timothy, Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived you know, fell into transgression. Which has caused some to say, see, the woman was deceived. See, see. Which I consider to be the most you know, arrogant, male, chauvinist kind of thing to say. Uh, that, that wasn't in the email, by the way. But. Because though the woman was deceived, according to St. Paul, Adam was not. So he eats of the tree, according to St. Paul, knowing what he's doing. That hardly speaks in flattering terms of Adam, does it? But furthermore, as I wanted to underscore last week, the word of God came to Adam. It was his responsibility to teach it and to preach it. And so if this, that this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will kill you, separate you from God, bring about your condemnation, if I'm preaching that sermon, stay away from it. Don't touch it. Is it possible to eat fruit without touching it? It's impossible. Even if you have your hands behind your back and you're bobbing for apples, you, uh, did they do that anymore? You can't do that anymore since COVID, right? I think we should bob for apples uh, on Friday. Just as a kind of affront to the, uh, okay. Yeah, so, so I've heard many of fine and men whom I respect say, Eve added to the word of God when she said, you shall not touch it. But uh, I just cannot, I cannot go there because it's impossible to eat something without touching it. And if you're going to fondle the, the fruit of that tree, it's not going to lead to good things. You know, when, when you cook, I think I mentioned this last week too, right? Chocolate chip cookies at home and you, it's late in the afternoon, you tell the kids, don't have any cookies. If they were hovering over that cookie jar or that rack, wire rack, get away from there. I'm not eating them. Okay, which is a thing about the Genesis 3 and those first 11 chapters of Genesis. They really do define and describe how things really are. Adam, where are you? I heard your voice and I was afraid. Who told you that you were afraid? The woman whom you gave to me with me. She gave me the tree and I ate. It's not my fault. It's your fault and that woman you gave to me. Uh, how many of you have said that about your wife? Raise your hand. No, don't. Okay. And then Eve, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. It's not my fault. There's no culpability there. If we have children, we see this all the time. And then the promise, I will put enmity, the Lord says, to the serpent in the hearing of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity, strife, warfare between you 
devil and the woman, between your seed devil and her seed. The kingdom of the serpent, the kingdom of the evil one, is a kingdom of unbelief, impenitence, rejection of God and his goodness. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It's a kingdom of faith. So what is at war here is faith in Christ versus the unbelief that attacks that faith. That's the source of the enmity. Um, the devil doesn't like babies. It's true. He doesn't like life because he doesn't like life with God. And the one baby he hates most of all is the one that Herod tried to kill. Okay. So it does a lot, again, these first 11 chapters to describe the world in which we live and also persecution against the church. I'll put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You see it there with Adam and Eve in the garden. You see the devil marshaled against the Virgin Mary, and she's pregnant with the Lord Jesus, and how he is marshaled against the church, the bride of Christ, whose offspring you and I are. August. Did the devil work through Herod to try and kill Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So the fall into sin is man's act. The curse of the fall is not simply a result of sin. But the curse of the fall is God's action. Cursing the creation. As St. Paul says, subjecting it to futility, but not without hope. Subjecting it to futility in view of the resurrection or redemption of the children of God. That's how the resurrection is called the redemption, where the body is reclaimed and made new the way God intended it from the beginning. So... The pain of childbirth and child rearing and the emotional pain that's attached to that that women feel most acutely. That is God's action. That we work and toil in the sweat of our brow. That is God's action. That work is difficult. That is God cursing the creation. So why is this important? It's important because it inspires in us, or ought to, a sense of humility over against our relationship with God. Humility is an aspect of repentant faith. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, neither he nor his parents sinned but that the works of God might be manifest. Now, that's in John's Gospel, John chapter 9, the healing of the blind man. Does that mean that the blind man had no sin? Does that mean that his parents had no sin? No. But what it does mean is that God was not zapping that grown man now with blindness because of his sin or zapping his parents to have a son born blind because of their sin. But that doesn't mean that they're not all sinners, and we're all sinners, and in a certain sense you could say 
we deserve what we get, whatever suffering it is. We have no right or no claim to not suffer. I've got a right to be healthy or something like that. I've got a right not to get cancer or heart disease or something like that. We can't really say that. But that doesn't mean that when we're suffering those things, God is doing it because he's zapping us. So the curse of the fall, which some might think, you know, the zap of the fall, huh? Uh, the pain of childbirth and, and so forth, and the toil of daily work, and all of the things that comes out of that, are actually to be looked at in a better, a healthier way as an act of love. You say, how in the world can that be an act of love? In the same way that chastening and disciplining your children is an act of love. So God curses the creation on account of man's sin, yes, to show us how much we need him from whom the devil's lies and sin had severed us. Angela. The tragic house fire that just happened in Hartridge over the uh, what was it yesterday? Yesterday, the day before, um, where someone you know how, how does God let this happen? Um, that would be an appropriate witness to that. It would be. And um, with our fourth grade this week in the academy, the account of Job, and of course the the devil appears before the Lord and says. The only reason Job worships you is you've put a hedge around him. I mean, he's wealthy, he's healthy, he's got a big family, he's got all these flocks and herds, he's got a wife. There's nothing wrong. Of course he loves you. Take it away, he'll hate you, he'll curse you. And then God says, no, he won't. I give him over to you to do what you will, but do not take his life. So then all of this stuff happens. And then at the end, what does Job say after that first encounter? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor did he accuse God of wrongdoing. Amazing. That's faith. See, faith believes and trusts in the Lord, not because of what benefit I'm going to get out of it. And if I don't get the benefit, well, what's the point? And I'll say that even in terms of salvation. I'm going to trust in the Lord because then I'll get salvation. Well, okay, there is the promise, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But finally and ultimately, salvation is about a person. This is the, this is the hymn I'm wanting for Christmas. Lord, thee I love with all my heart. I pray thee ne'er from me depart with tender mercy, cheer me. Earth has no pleasure I would share. Yea, heaven itself were void and bare if thou, Lord, were not near me. And all too often as Christians, we think of heaven as being a place where we can eat all we want, not get fat, play golf in endless rounds, never get sore muscles, so, which is all a vision of heaven, which is a, a, a vision and a picture of self-indulgence framed by our sinful attitudes. No, heaven is about being in Christ and knowing him and the one who, who is love, who created us and who redeemed us and who makes life worth living. Okay, so then the devil comes to Job again 
Or the devil comes to God again and says, yeah, but skin for skin. You take his, you afflict his life, then he'll curse you. And so then he was covered with boils from his head to his, from his head to his foot. <laughs> did you see what I did? Pointed to my feet? Okay. From his head to his foot, his foot to his head, he's covered with boils. And he's miserable. And he takes a pot shirt, clape, and he's breaking off the, the pustules, opening them up to dry them out. And he's miserable. But he's, he's still alive. And then his wife says, you're going to still hold to your faith? Curse God and die. Thanks for your support. And then his friends come to comfort him, and they accuse him, Angela, there must be something that he did wrong. That's why this is happening to him. Okay? So that's not the case. And um, what Job is allowed to go through and what the devil permit, what God permits the devil to do and God is permitting the devil to do those things. The devil's will, there's always two wills at work. The devil's will is to destroy faith, to destroy the kingdom of God. God's will, through the things that we suffer, like the curse of the fall, to build up faith, to use it to call people to repentance. Okay? We saw a little bit of that. It was, some was correctly... Um, a manifestation of repentance, other was feigned at 9-11. Suddenly all these people are in the church. And then it dissipated after that. So what God, what the hymn says is still true. What God ordains is always good, even if it means to suffer. And one final point on that as we go then into Genesis 4. One final point is this. Why is it so painful to lose a loved one in death? We were created to live forever? I don't disagree with that. You hear my question again? Why is it so painful to lose a loved one in death? Separation. To have, why is it so painful to have a child taken from parents ahead of the parents? Nathaniel. Sin is what causes the pain? You could say that, but I think it might be better to say it's because love is grieved. See, love, to be loved, gives of itself to another. And the joy of loving is to have the love received. So love is, by its very character, reciprocal. Love is, by its very character, communal. So this connects with what you said, Becca, about we're created to live forever in the love of God, we with him and he with us. And so we're separated from that. That's, there's, a, there's a breach in that. And that's what makes death so painful when we've lost loved ones. But now consider this. Would you rather have not had that person? I don't want to get married because 
it might not turn it's out. Too painful. <laughs> well, it. Right. What if it doesn't? You know. So. And if COVID didn't teach people anything, like a brick bat over the forehead, is how we're not created to be separated from each other, but to be in communion with each other. So this is why you never, you never get over death, not until the resurrection, then you'll be over it. You know, if, if the, the Christian parent, the Christian child uh, that has gone before you in the Lord, the father confessor, the beloved pastor. You don't get over those things in this life. You learn to walk through them and carry them. You don't go up to Job and say, hey, Job, get a life, have some joy. What's the matter with you? Man, he's suffering real pain. You learn to carry the pain. And you learn to carry the pain by seeing in our suffering, Jesus' suffering, learning through our suffering how to identify with him who in his suffering bore all of that separation, that pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we learn something about the gospel. This is one of the reasons why the pain and the suffering and the misery of life is there. We learn something of Jesus' suffering, which then gives the church and her ministers and every baptized Christian the opportunity to confess the hope that we have in Christ for those who are so afflicted. And that's where the, the joy and the delight uh, comes. All right, Genesis chapter 4. We want to spend a little time talking about Cain and Abel. In our study of Genesis, I don't necessarily intend that we will be able to... Uh, well, we could, we could do that. Uh, every single verse, every single word, but those of you who have been in Coffee Break Bible study enough know that sometimes those studies go on for three and four years. You know, so. But I do want to make significant connections for you, and then I invite you to ask questions, and if I don't have the answer, we'll uh, come back at trying to find the answer. But Genesis chapter 4, remember the promise, the seed of the woman who is our Lord, who would crush the serpent's head. A picture of Jesus, and in so doing, his heel would be bruised. A picture of Jesus' suffering upon the cross that brings about redemption and conquest of the devil, redemption from his power. Chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife. So this is in the family sense. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, now the English text says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. But more accurately, she's saying, I've gotten a man who is the Lord. She had the correct theology. She understood from the promise that the Lord would be born of a woman to redeem us from Satan's power. And that was spot on correct. I've gotten a man who's the Lord himself. What was incorrect is it wasn't this man, but another man. Cain, do you know what, um, the, 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 the name means like gotten or 
um, obtained or acquired. So that's why he was named that. And she's thinking about that. I've, I've gotten that promise. I've gotten that seed. Not true. It turns out to be a murderer. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. I can't tell you exactly what was going through their minds when they named him Abel. Because Abel means nothing. Or, you know, a, a breath as, as, as in terms of something that's absolutely fleeting. And of course he had a short life that was absolutely fleeting. But look what it says about them. Abel was a keeper of sheep. So what do we call those who keep sheep? Shepherds. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, Bob, is Bob here? Bob, there's nothing wrong with tilling the ground. But I would advise you to hang on to those sheep. No. Um, tiller of the ground. Tiller of the dust. So here's Cain the man from the dust who tills the dust. Abel is a shepherd who tends the sheep. Now, don't get the idea that one of these vocations is better than another, but it is set up this way because everything that God reports to us in the narrative of Scripture has purpose. And I'd like to suggest to you that Cain should be thought of as embodying Every person, every sinner who has ever lived, because we are so like Cain according to our flesh. We came from the dust, and we act in dustly ways. All right. And then Abel is a shepherd. It is not a coincidence that the first, the first one put to death in the scriptures is a shepherd. It's not coincidental that the first one put to death is put to death by a sinful man from the dust. And the man put to death is a shepherd. Does that have a familiarity to you? I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock. So these verses indicate that both boys, both young men, brought their best. And I think this is very important to underscore because when I was growing up, it was repeated to me numerous times that God did not accept Cain's offering because it wasn't the best. But he accepted Abel's because it was the best. What is the theological problem with that view? August. Angela. It puts it on selfish decision. What did you say, Becca? I think it's works righteous. Okay. So he accepts the offering because of the goodness of this offering. He rejects the offer, uh, this offering because it wasn't the best. 
they were both the best of what they had. Then why is one rejected? Well, let's read on. So Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Facial. He was despondent. He was pouting Caleb, having a pity party. The twins get everything, and I get nothing. Now, look what happens, and in what happens, you see the faith of Cain. So, Cain's offering was rejected, not because in and of itself it wasn't good crops, best of what he had, but the faith out of which he gave it was a self-centered, works-righteous faith. God, you owe me. Do you not realize what I gave to you? And you don't even accept it. That is shown in two places. First, by what Cain does here. And then in another place in the scriptures that we'll look at in a moment. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Now think about this. Bob, if the Lord... Well, I'm giving it away by the question. If the Lord blesses you with a bumper crop of soybeans, who gets the credit? If the, God does. So to the extent that we have anything, if we have a large family, if we have crops and herds, what do we just pray for the last two weeks under the first article of the creed? I believe God has made me and all creatures. He's given me my body, soul, eyes, ears, all my members, my reason, all my senses, and still takes care of them. Also clothing and shoes, food, drink, house, home, wife, children, land, animals, and all I have. Other than that, what has he done for me? <laughs> so why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Now here, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In the letter to the Hebrews, it says, without something, it is impossible to please God. Faith. Faith that has as its object the person and work of our Lord Jesus, the promise of the gospel. If you do well, will you not be accepted? So the Lord is targeting the reason why he rejected Cain's offering is because his faith was not in the Lord and the promise of his grace. If you do not do well, so here again, if your faith is not in the Lord and the promise of his grace, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. I love this image here. Sin lies at the door like, you know, the prowling lion stalking what is sin's desire that lies at the door? You're supposed to rule over it, but he doesn't. What, is it, what does it want to do? Steve, quickly. Steal my faith. Steal your, okay, well, it wants to destroy you. It wants to possess you. It wants to control you, right? And thereby, faith is, is destroyed. Okay, so sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you. It's the same word here, desire, by the way, as you have in chapter 3, under the curse of the fall, the woman's desire, 
for the husband. It's not sexual desire, but it is the desire for the husband's place. Since the fall, there's been an inversion of uh, the order of creation and the threat to the headship. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God the Father uh, from 1 Corinthians. So ever since Adam abdicated his responsibility, there's been this vacuum of spiritual headship created that the woman desires to to take. Same word is here. Sin's desire is to control you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now again, notice uh, what follows after this, how the faith, the works righteous, proud, and arrogant faith of Cain is manifest in what he says. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So according to his response to the Lord, is there any love in it? No. There's no love at all in it. For the only one that Cain loves is himself. That's why he hates his brother. Okay? Okay. What would be the answer to that question, by the way? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. yes. That's what love enjoins upon us under the second table of the law. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And it was necessary that this curse be given. Why? Because God hates Cain. Is that the answer? No. Allison, why? He needed to teach Cain a lesson. Did he want to call him to repentance? To reclaim him? Yeah. So it was necessary that this happened, just like my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. So what seems to be terrible punishment, being with Becca LeGros, is really a good and blessed thing. All right, but look at Cain's response. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Now, God cursed the creation. God now curses uh, Cain, but he does it in love. What is this an act of by God? Putting a hedge around, preve preventing Cain from being killed as long as he lived. August. 
Well, we're not told of all of the sons and the daughters that Adam and Eve had, but they had many sons and daughters. Well, they're, they're the, no, they're the only two that we've heard of thus far. And then there'll be more that keep, that keep coming. Remember, the ages are, are long, and you don't, you don't go into retirement at the age of 60 or 65 or 70. Okay? So they're, they're all, a mere, I mean, Adam and Eve lived centuries. Okay? And then their offspring lived centuries. Okay? But back to my question, why, what is this an act of when God puts this protection around Cain? On the one hand, he's cursed, but that's an act of love. Mercy. Chuck? Mercy, okay. For love's sake. You know, if someone, if someone denies the faith or falls from the faith or renounces God, pray for a long life and the opportunities for that person to be brought to repentance. Peter. It's a similar image to what we see in the fall when he curses the world and then promises but the, then prom- the sons. We're seeing right. the same story told and, again. And, and in the flood narrative that's coming up in Genesis where there's the judgment and the curse of the fall and then yep, the promise. Philip, the rest of you turn to Luke 11. I just, uh, Hebrews 11, sorry, yeah. Hebrews 11. Just again, like one of the first uh, complaints that uh, Cain has about the punishment is that he will be driven from God's face or hidden, or is it hidden from God's face even before complaining about being a fugitive and a vagabond. It's being separated from God that is the more terrifying yes, and, thing. And how, how many times is that our conclusion? It's a false conclusion. God wants to lift up his countenance and shine his face upon Cain. You can say, how can that be? Well, because the Lord loves Cain as he loves us. But it's necessary for him to go through these things. But when we go through those things, we're likely to conclude exactly what Cain did, that the Lord has turned his face against me. And to show that that is not the case, he puts this hedge around him for the sake of his reclamation. Now, I ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. You have in verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So you see, we're talking right at creation. And then this, verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Remember, faith always has an object. In the Bible, anything that is done by faith is always faith in Christ and in the promise of the gospel. So you can look at it this way. Why did Abel offer this gift? Out of faith and in thanksgiving to his Lord for the gift of grace and salvation that was his? Why did Cain give his offering of the best fruits out of faith in himself and his own works and that God owed him? By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, being dead, still speaks. And coming up in chapter 5 of Genesis, 
By faith, Enoch was translated so that he did not see death and was not found because God had translated him. He, he ascends into heaven and does not die a physical death. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Again, without faith in Christ. So our works are righteous, not because they are righteous works. Our works are righteous by virtue of faith in the righteous one who covers us with his righteousness. I'll pause here one minute to see if there's any comment or quick question that you'd like to make. Pastor Gelbach. Hebrews, even though he's dead, he speaketh, and he said unto Abel, your brother's blood cries out to me, you know, even though he be dead, that this, that is the righteousness of, uh, of faith is being cried out. Yeah, and they, in the Lenten hymn, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain, you know, the, and the glory be to Jesus, uh, the, the blood of Abel cries out for an answer. The answer is given by the blood of Christ. Um, now, one final thing then about this faith. In Hebrews 11, don't put your eggs in the basket of faith as the strength of believing, but rather put your eggs in the basket that faith strength is in faith's object. This is very important. Um, otherwise, you begin to navel gaze on the quality of your believing. It's not the quality of your believing. It's the object of faith. So when Jesus says to the Canaanite woman, oh woman, great is your faith, it is as if he were saying, oh woman, great is your Jesus because he was the object of her faith. And if you look at that account, there's not a shred of self-reliance in the confession of that Canaanite woman and how she's treated. And so that's what you have here. Cain, uh, Abel fully accepts, I'm a sinner. I'm worthy of none of God's grace. But he claimed the promise by faith, and he was well-pleasing to God. Okay, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.